Welcome to Careers in Discovery, your window into the world of leaders in pharma and biotech. Brought to you by Singular Talent, making hiring better for organizations involved in drug discovery and R&D. Steve Gardner is the CEO and founder of Row Analytics, an AI-enabled drug discovery and precision medicine company using a groundbreaking algorithm to tackle some of the biggest challenges in human health. We discuss technology, medicine, entrepreneurship, and Steve's fascinating career. I'm here this week with Steve Gardner of Row Analytics. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Steve, I thought it might be good for us to start with uh, your thoughts on artificial intelligence in drug discovery and precision medicine, where that's at, it's a very hot topic in the industry, and what you're doing here at Row Analytics to, to have a different spin on that space. Yeah, well, AI and drug discovery is not as new as you would imagine it to be. Mm-hmm. We've been developing really interesting technologies for at least the 25 years that I've been in the industry. Okay. Um, really trying to use information in better ways to understand the fit of targets and compounds um, to ever more complex diseases. Um, Where things really took off uh, from my perspective was when uh, the Human Genome Project came around. Mm. And I think we had this expectation at the time that we would be able to sequence all of the DNA, find all the mutations associated with (laughs) different diseases, find a drug against every um, mutation or every misfolded protein, whatever, and then human health would be sorted by now. And we could all go home. Yeah, we could all go home, yeah, absolutely. Um, Of course, the reality is that that it's a great deal more complex than Mm -hmm. that. And one of the things, one of the really interesting challenges that I see now is that we've become incredibly good at collecting information about patients mm. in a way that we've never been able to do before. And it's, it's being enabled by, um, obviously, next generation sequencing um, and the, the lowering of the costs there. Mm. Other single molecule detection technologies like lipid biopsy technologies, um, mass spec, uh, biomedical imaging, electronic medical records, all of these things are playing a huge role. What what I find interesting is that while we've got much, much better at collecting a lot of data about patients, when you then say, well, what can we do with that? It's not quite as obvious. Mm. So we haven't been so good at translating uh, for example, the, the Human Genome Project through genome-wide association studies into medicines. Mm. You know, we can't account for a lot of what is driving disease in complex patient populations. And if you go even further, when you get to the clinician perspective and you ask them to make a decision based on all of this knowledge that we now have, they don't have the tools to do that. Right. And that, that, to me, those are the big challenges. So we have huge opportunity because we've got the data, but figuring out what it means, how we can turn that into new drugs mm-hmm. or new uses for old drugs, which is actually a whole other thing. Yes. Or in terms of better recommendations for which drugs are going to work for which patients, 
those are the key challenges and I think that's where AI as a broad label but data analytics as a as a much more specific set of um, uh, topics can mm. really start to help um, you know so we look at patient stratification we look at um, identify uh, identification of targets that are relevant to subgroups of patients yes more than one size fits all and then you look at providing tools that enable their clinicians to um, to actually make the best decisions for the patient in front of them yeah and those are the those are the challenges and I think those are the, the areas that we can we can do a lot in um, AI more broadly in in drug discovery has really been used in I guess four different areas mm -hmm. so there's a lot of work going on in um, in the genomics side of things and the target discovery and validation side. Yes. There's chemistry, lots of good companies out there doing lead optimization, mm -hmm. um, and you see a lot, of, a lot of those sort of structural chemistry companies. There are companies out there then doing um, automation of, um, of assays yep. and you know, uh, optimization of robotic testing and things like that. Uh, and then there are other companies, um, such as ourselves, um, getting involved in that patient stratification and understanding you know, how you can apply that to individual patients as well as subgroups of patients. Yes, I see. And those are kind of the areas that I, I think AI is, broadly speaking, being applied to. Yes. And you've touched on it a little bit there, but tell us a bit more about raw analytics and particularly what you're focusing on here. Yeah, so we're... Um, we call ourselves an AI-enabled drug discovery and precision medicine business. We actually have a proprietary uh, mathematical framework, so we don't use deep learning or neural nets okay. as part of our core business. Yeah. Um, we do use them, but peripherally. We actually have our own proprietary mathematical framework that we use for analyzing complex sets of data. Mm. and We use them to generate um, unique insights into complex diseases. So, you know, we can, the, the basic premise is that um, if, you're, if you're using a current uh, genome-wide association tool, you're looking for one SNP, one mutation, that occurs in, in a disease population, mm. not in a control population. Mm. Um, the problem is, if you're doing it one gene at a time, one SNP at a time, you can only put people into a pretty small number of buckets. Right. Do they have zero, one, or two copies of that mutation? Sure. If you do combinations of features, you can get higher and higher resolution ways of looking at that patient population. Okay. And that creates huge new opportunities for you. You can see the structure of complex diseases, the architecture of that disease population. Mm. And that's fantastic because now you can see where the subgroups are. Now you can see whether they are well served by existing medicines or not. You can get, uh, you can see where the opportunities to address new targets that are relevant to that disease yes. may be, or to look at opportunities to bring existing medicines in to treat some of the patients who are perhaps not going to be responsive to that one size fits all mm. blockbuster kind of uh, medicine. Yeah, I see. I so see. That's that's basically what we do. You know, we're we're applying. Um, we're applying the technologies, so we, we care about sub-selecting those patient populations for disease risk, that's mm -hmm. diagnostic, for disease progression, you know, are they going to be fast progressors, slow progressors, right. 
and are they going to respond to therapies or not? Are yes. Responders or non-responders, and you can use that then. You know, for stratification in biopharma, you would use it for clinical trials design. Right. In healthcare, you would use it for um, precision medicine. Mm-hmm. We do all of those things. Yeah, I see. Very interesting. And are, are there particular um, areas of disease or areas of health that you see this being applicable to more than others? Or um, I think what we're coming to realise is that most diseases are complex diseases. Sure. Yeah. And you know, if you look at um, the top ten selling drugs in the US, um, and you look at the number of patients that they benefit it's only a small proportion of the number of uh, patients to whom they're prescribed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's, that's an opportunity. Um, certainly if you're a payer or a provider or a patient in the US, you know, you're looking at that thinking, well, I've been collecting this data for decades. Should I be, uh, should I be using this in a slightly better way? Right. And it becomes particularly relevant when you're talking about complex and chronic diseases. Mm-hmm. So we're turning cancer um, into a succession of rare chronic diseases. Um, many cancers, uh, you know, they're, they're very specific about the molecular um, makeup of the tumours. Yes. And we're targeting medicine at the molecular makeup, not at the diagnostic label of the, of the tumour. That's the poster child for this sort of precision medicine. But other diseases are exactly the same. So one of the things that we do routinely, and it doesn't matter whether it's diabetes, Alzheimer's, autism, um, asthma, we were finding subpopulations within that broad disease label mm. whose molecular etiology you know the the thing the molecular signatures that are driving those diseases are different okay and therefore it's very likely that the the medicines that they're going to benefit from are going to be different right so you know you ask which disease areas it's it's dementia it's copd Mm -hmm. it's cardiovascular it's metabolic diseases like diabetes it's all of those things that are costing the health system yes a large amount of money um, and I think it's it's highly applicable to all of them. Yes, and you, you've touched on a couple of times there this concept which is becoming more popular of um, retooling existing treatments mm. for, for other conditions because there's a lot of treatments out there that have been developed with a target or a small group of targets in mind but could have broader use. Yeah, yeah and you know, if one of the benefits of being able to um, stratify your patient populations in terms of the targets that define them, the you know the mutations in the targets that are going to sensitize them, or drive their disease risk, is you get you get a, a systematic understanding of where existing medications that are hitting those targets um, are actually uh, actually have potential value. Mm. Um, given the genetic understanding of that. Um, it becomes very, very easy and very rapid to be able to bring those um, insights into clinical practice. Yes. What you're seeing, particularly in the US, is organizations, I mean, already 20% of um, medication use in the US is off-label prescription. Okay, yeah. Um, 
you can think of it as off-label prescription just being a Wild West kind of thing. <laughs> or you could think of it as being a more organised yeah. um, activity, doing N of 1 trials where you're actually harmonising the... You're using um, a molecular uh, rationale as evidence. You're invoking a clinical team, not just an individual clinician. Mm. As we do in cancer exactly now, this is exactly the sort of analogy. And then you're monitoring the patient and collecting those data as if it were a proper trial. Yes. So you're learning from the prescriptions that you're making. And I think I think in the next five or ten years, we're probably going to see a lot more of that. Yeah, okay. So that's taking it beyond the sort of uh, collected wisdom or experience of the individual GP. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, I think that, you know, the, the practice of medicine is going to change radically. Mm. Um, and with it, the practice of, of pharmaceutical discovery is going to change radically. Sure, absolutely. We have affordability issues at the moment. Right, yeah. Um, so th there's a very big um, uh, there's a very big dependence on biologic drugs at mm -hmm. the moment. Um, you know, they, they represent only 2% of the prescriptions in the US, but they're 37% of the, um, the on-label drug spend. Wow. It's, uh, it's a huge <laughs> deal. Um, you know, we need to make medicine affordable. It's 18% mm -hmm. of GDP in the US. It costs about five times to treat um, someone over the age of 65 as it does to treat somebody under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. There's going to be double the number of uh, over 65s in 20 years' time. We can't, all of these are brewing up to a perfect storm of making medicine unaffordable. Right. And we have to find, you know, there, there are just really, really big pharmacoeconomic, social economic burden and patient outcome uh, pulls to make this system work better. Yes. But we need the technology to do it. Yeah, and you know, one of the sort of um, common statements that you hear about that is that we're actually paying for failure. We're paying for the drugs that don't work and the trials that don't progress and the programs that don't progress, but perhaps using computational power to direct some of the discovery programs and clinical programs and actually broaden the use of some of the treatments that are out there that could tip that balance somewhat? Yeah, I think so. Um, certainly uh, GSK, AstraZeneca and AbbVie have done a very good job of doing a retrospective portfolio analysis mm -hmm. and looking at the factors that differentiate successful programs from less successful programs. Yes. And, you know, if you look at uh, AstraZeneca have their five R's principle, you know, and uh, broadly speaking, for the things we, we care about. If you can find the right target, um, in other words, one for which you have a genetic explanation and a, a testable hypothesis of a mechanism of action that occurs in the right tissue, so it's, you know, you can, you have bioavailability to actually get mm. drugs to a tissue that is Im implicated in the disease. You have the right compound with the right kind of safety profile and um, uh, bioavailability and all the rest of it. Um, and then you can select the right patient yes. um, to put that therapy in. You have a radically improved chance, I think it's a 4x um, improvement of getting those uh, compounds through phase three trials. Wow, okay, that much. It's absolutely huge. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and there are time benefits and cost benefits mm -hmm. involved as well. Um, 
So yes, I think the technologies are, are going to be absolutely pivotal in, in being able to do that. Um, there are some technical challenges there. Of course, yeah. You know, the, the thing with all of those is um, disease, complex diseases are not monogenic. Mm -hmm. They're not monogenic in the sense that they're, they're neither caused by one single gene nor are they purely genetically determined. Right, yes. So there's a whole bunch of other information that we need to be able to bring into the mix in order to be able to define which patient groups are going to respond which way to which therapies. Um, so uh, gender, uh, ethnicity, lifestyle, uh, stage of disease, comorbidities, co-prescription, uh, you know, environmental information, um, epigenetics. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge range of other factors that we need to be able to bring in, and this just makes it insanely complex. Yes. To deal with. Yes. And that's why we need better analytical tools. Mm -hmm. And that's actually why we set the company up. <laughs> there we go. Um, and your role here is as CEO. I'm the founder and CEO of the business. Yeah. Tell us a bit about what you spend most of your time on. What, what does your, I'm sure it's very broad, but what do you, what do yeah. you seem to do most? Well, I'm, I'm responsible for everything, but um, the, the sad truth about being CEO is you very rarely get to do the bits that you enjoy doing. <laughs> you kind of have to give those to other people yes. to, to, to go and do. But no, in, in, in all seriousness, um, you know, I'm, I'm broadly responsible for setting the, the vision for the business. Mm -hmm. And then structuring teams in such a way that people can contribute to the best of their abilities. They can be individually successful, but in the context that they're then successful for the whole company. And if you can do that, you tend to get a lot of growth in the, in the people within the business. And you, know, you, you engender um, uh, an organizational um, structure that that tends to uh, be very collaborative and, mm -hmm. you know you get you get more out of it than you could put in yourself yes you know it's it's not just a procedural basis of, of you know executing what I thought of on day one and going forward <laughs> we've got a whole bunch of people sparking off each other right. and driving ideas and, and being creative and innovative and being you know, being successful at driving those things through to, to fruition. And that's that's actually the more, one of the more rewarding pieces of what, what I end up doing. Sure. Yeah. So a lot of it focuses on setting the direction and creating the environment. Internally, yes, mm. absolutely. So that's, that's my, you know, that's my bread and butter day job internally. I do spend more of my time talking, you know, fundraising is the, is the sure. short answer yeah. with, uh, <laughs> with, with a startup CEO. Yes. Um, or an early stage CEO, you know, we, we're continuously fundraising, essentially. Um, but uh, that's, that's rewarding in and of itself. You know, that, that communication with external teams is actually one of the privileges of my job is getting to go out and talk about what we do and mm -hmm. see people's reaction to it. Yes. Which is incredibly, you know, which is, thankfully is very positive and therefore is uh, um, very rewarding. But you also get a load of new ideas that way, so you know that that's really what what the day job involves. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned there that you were the founder of the company as well. Um, and I'm always interested in where the where the sort of seeds of an idea come from, or where you know where the company originates from. So could could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I've been in 
startup businesses, I've been building products and teams and companies for um, 20 odd years. Yeah. And we've been in this space, we've been trying to use information um, to make better decisions throughout mm-hmm. the process, whether that's in early stage pharma R&D, safety, or increasingly in healthcare. Um, and always hitting this, this glass ceiling, if you like, is probably the better way of putting it. We, we could see where the goal was, right. but we couldn't get there because the, the analytics were not able to deal with the complexity of the problem. Yes. And so this, is, this was in the back of my mind um, and had been for many, many years that there was a certain level that we could achieve and that you know, wasn't going to exit. That, that could get us to the very, very lowest hanging fruit. Mm-hmm. But there was a huge amount of value to be had if only we could represent these more, more complex diseases yes. more naturally. And um, I, I actually answered a LinkedIn post, which okay. you believe that's how this all came about. Um, my now co-founder, Gert Muller, um, out of uh, Copenhagen, he had uh, developed a, a mathematical framework that had a lot of power. And he'd used it in nuclear power plant design and railway safety systems and you know big companies like Electrolux, for example, mm-hmm. use it for the design of, of many of their products. Okay. Um, but at its heart, there's a mathematical kernel allows us to deal with very complex spaces. The most complex problem of all is the biology of seven billion humans right. and how you get drugs to affect it in the way that you want. Of course, yeah. So he set out a, a LinkedIn challenge that basically said, can anybody tell me how I would apply this in, in life sciences? And a, I saw it, which is bizarre. <laughs> B, I chose to reply to it, which is also a little bit odd. And C, I wrote a whole page and a half of, of thoughts about what, where you could take this technology. Mm. And it, um, we ended up meeting a couple of weeks later. We got on extremely well. And we realized that we'd spent our careers trying to address the same problem from essentially orthogonal directions. Yes. And you know, it became obvious that if we put the technologies that we'd independently been developing together, we would have a, a platform that would allow us to analyze these very large data populations and then break down the results in a way that can be applied at the point of care for individual patients mm-hmm. and do that whole process. You know, go from the, the very early genomic research type stuff to learning about complex diseases to actually making actionable decisions based yes. on all of that knowledge. And we, you know, that was the, uh, the, the basis of the platforms that we could see building. So we set ourselves um, the challenge to do that. And um, we actually started off very much as a software company. Mm-hmm. Um, so wishing to build those platforms and sell them to, com- uh, to biopharma companies to let them go and do this themselves. And at one point we realized that actually we were generating so much, um, uh, so much insight and uh, things that were so tractable that actually there was more value to be had in using that ourselves. Yes. And generating IP around the molecular assets, the targets and the drug candidates, yes. the biomarkers. Um, 
and so that's for the last 18 months or so and that's what we've been doing. Mm -hmm. I find the, the serendipity of that amazing that you've both built <laughs> careers that have led to this point where you've seen each other on LinkedIn and that's created this this business. <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I guess it's, um, it, it absolutely is serendipitous and you know one of the things when you've done a whole number of startups is you realize just how much luck there is involved <laughs> in this. But I'm reminded of of the quote that's variously attributed to various golfers, I mean, it was Arnold Palmer or Gary Player or whatever. Yeah. You know, the more I practice, the luckier I get. Sure, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think being prepared and understanding what it is that you need to have to solve the problem is a really important part of getting lucky. Mm. Um, and I think we were, we were at that place. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, so let's take it back earlier uh, in your career and, and I always like to start back at the beginning so you you sort of started out um, in your academic career in protein sciences for your PhD but we'll go back even further than that and, and tell me a bit about I guess the early spark that got you interested in science or where you know where that career germinated from so you know the thing that got me started on this path um, was I, I I was trying to remember back when it would have been, but I imagine it's the very first biology lessons that I had in right. grammar school. Yeah. When I when I learned about the structure of DNA, and I learned about its information transformation, uh, transport and transmission uh, properties, mm -hmm. and then I learned how evolution operates on it. And from that moment, I was totally hooked, and that's what right. I was going to do. And that's where you get information, you get genomics, and of course, you get proteins as the the effectors. Mm -hmm. I had a brilliant biology teacher, um, Mr. Pratt, and he was he was an absolute inspiration in terms of driving my interest further into into the biological space. All the other pieces, the maths, the physics, the chemistry, and the rest of it came alongside. Right, but. You know that's where it, it really started yeah very interesting take us through the rest of that then so where, how did that then develop and so I originally I, I, so I was I did apply to be a medic um, okay and I didn't get my maths which is ironic um, it's I, a really common get, story that we hear yeah, actually. yeah I didn't get the grade I wanted but, uh -huh. uh, so I didn't get I didn't get into medical school and um, in clearing I found a course in Reading called pathobiology Biology is an amazing course. Okay, um, you have all of these little specialities. So you do physiology and biochemistry. You do genetics. You do developmental biology. You do inorganic and organic chemistry. You do computing. You do a whole range of, of these things, and it's really the science behind disease. So okay, the, the yeah. scientific aspects of medicine, not the clinical aspects of medicine, and. Um, it gave me a fantastic and broad grounding in all of the, the different aspects of um, how we go about diagnosing and, and treating disease. Mm. And um, that ultimately led to me uh, getting involved in um, trying to predict the structure of proteins way back when. I'm, yes. I'm going back to the days when we probably had 100 structures. Okay, yeah. Um, and my third year project there was, was very much, um, it was involved in the early bioinformatics of taking sequence and turning it into structural prediction. 
Um, that got me into um, Birkbeck, mm-hmm. um, where I ultimately ended up doing a part-time PhD. Yes. And I fell on my feet because I landed in the lab of Tom Blundell and Janet Thornton, two deeply, deeply impressive um, people who, you know, have made huge contributions to the mm-hmm. area. And um, yes, in, in Janet's lab, I, I ended up doing a PhD in right at the intersection between our early attempts to do protein homology modeling. So the very first times we were really um, from a rational basis designing protein structures to do jobs that we wanted them to. Yeah. Uh, and on the other hand, getting involved in the bioinformatics, I wrote the um, first 3D structure database for, for protein structures. In okay. the lab. And then that in turn led me to my next revelation, which is that I wanted to be a tool maker. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be turning the handle. I see. And so my, my PhD had been um, funded by uh, the BTG, the British Technology Group, as was, um, which I guess came out of Thatcher era kind of stuff. Mm. It was designed to commercialize the results of academic research. Yes. Which was completely unheard of at the time. <laughs> and so um, we. Uh, we got involved with um, a tiny little company called Oxford Molecular, which at the time was, you know, a gleam in the eye of, mm-hmm. of uh, Graham Richards and Tony Marchington and uh, a couple of others, um, uh, which was a spin-out of Oxford University that really, its job was to take academic code and turn it into commercial standard software programs and sell it to the industry. Yeah. Um, and so I joined uh, Oxford Molecular um, as both an author of one of the packages and also as um, product manager for all of their macromolecular side of things. Mm-hmm. And then that was a whole riot. Um, that was a whole blast of uh, very interesting days. Shortly thereafter, ended up in the US opening their US office. Yeah, okay. We floated on the London Stock Exchange. We did a whole bunch of deals. We, I think, we bought nine U.S. nine or seven or nine U.S. companies, right. um, uh, including some fairly large ones. Um, so, you know, a lot of my formative experience in the business side happened in that four or five year period. Yes, of course. And we grew that to be a very successful business. Mm-hmm. So that made a lot of money. I guess at that point we kind of think, well, how hard can it be? You know, you're 28 years old. You've yeah, yeah. been through that process. You've done all of that stuff, and um, you know, it's it seems like everybody should be doing it all the time. So that's uh, accounts for a large proportion of my my subsequent career. Yes, and you you then headed though to a small company called Astra. I I did uh, as I left Oxford Molecular. I went to Astra as uh, their global director of research informatics. Yes, and this was really establishing bioinformatics as a, um, a, a it was a company uh, sorry a corporate competence center. They realised at the time that they didn't have enough bioinformaticians. They were spread around nine sites around the world. Right, and there weren't enough bioinformaticians in the world at that point yeah. to be able to populate each of them to uh, critical mass mm-hmm. and so they they had the notion this was one of six um, 
competence centers at HTS and uh, um, computational chemistry and various other things. And um, they put them in individual sites, but they had responsibility to provide those services globally. And actually, that was a really good example of um, the point at which you can have all this information in one place, but it not actually, because you can't make it relevant and available. You can make it available, but you can't make it accessible to people. Right, yes. And unless you can do that, then you know it's of no real use to them. It doesn't mm -hmm. impact their day-to-day -day job. Um, and so I spent a bit of time in Sweden um, uh, doing that for Astra. I yeah. learned a lot about the farmer industry from the inside. Good and bad, um, and uh, you know, figured out where some of those key problems were going to be going forward. And again, this was the time when Human Genome Project was just about to kick off, and um, you know, there were lots of there were. It was obvious that there were going to be lots of opportunities coming out of that side of things. Mm. Fair enough. And, and that sort of, I suppose, after that, that led you to maybe from what you'd learned at Oxford Molecular, but a series of kind of increasingly entrepreneurial ventures. Yeah, I think we're on our ninth startup now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> There's two in this building that we're, we're sat in. You must be a glutton for punishment. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, you know, I think self-awareness is really important in, in uh, certainly in, in being involved in um, entrepreneurship. And, I, you know, I enjoy that, that journey of building something from nothing to about 250 people and after that it's a different personality of business yeah. so yeah we've we've built um we've built a number of those um we've had some fantastic uh, you know i came back from astra founded a company with the um with a number of the guys from ebi the european bioinformatics mm -hmm. institute and um had a, an awesome team of people i mean just some of the best engineers i've ever worked right. with in, in my life and built a fabulous framework for sharing information, um, and that you know that ultimately got sold to um, uh, to Accelerus. Um, yeah, and and I've been involved with a number of companies, always with this notion of using information in in smarter ways. Yeah. Um, at least until we got into the management consultancy. <laughs> Which I'm sure was much broader. <laughs> it was, yeah. I mean, that was that was interesting. I mean, that that was a whole different learning experience. So um, we helped, I think, forty five companies get started. Okay. In that way, um, you know, twinkle in professors' eyes. Yeah. Um, turned them into fundable propositions and got them going. Uh, did interim work with uh, a number of other organisations, and you know, every time you go in. Um, and you spend time with an organization, you always learn something about, mm. um, you know, what's driving that organization. And you get to see recurring patterns of things that work and, you know, problems that, that cause, that limit the success of, of individual companies. Yeah. So fascinating learning experience. So across that breadth of different types of companies that you've both worked for and been involved with, and then you've also been in Sweden, in the US, in different working cultures as well. Yeah. This may be a difficult question, but if you had to distill that down to a few key things that you've learned along the way, what, what would they be, do you think? Um, the first thing is humility. Um, so we mentioned luck earlier. Luck mm. plays a huge part in, in anybody's success. 
unless you've been successful three times in a row, you know, it's just luck. <laughs> um, there are many people who attribute far too much to themselves sure. uh, in that process. And the second, the corollary of that is no one can do it all. Mm. You know, the, the, you, there is nobody who's talented enough to do the whole thing themselves. You, this is a team game and um, you have to ask for help along the way. You know, anyone who's starting out in this space, get a great team around you. Yeah. Use their networks, use their experience. You know, you, you have to draw on it. And the better you are on drawing at drawing on it, the more likely you are to be successful. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's probably the first thing. My second observation is that diverse teams work much, much better okay. than, you know, than, you know, let's, let's be honest, white, yeah. <laughs> as we say, male, pale and stale uh -huh, uh, yeah. teams. So if you, you know, if all you want to do is, is go get middle-aged white men to, uh, to run your business, you're probably not going to be as successful as, mm -hmm. you might find getting early funding um, better because that's where a lot of VC goes. Sure. But actually, diverse teams, if you just think about it, you know, if you have diversity in your team in terms of um, gender, in terms of uh, race, in terms of age, in terms of experience and skills, and those people communicate with one another, then you're going to come up with solutions that come from a whole variety of different perspectives. Yeah. If you just have, you know, lots of people who look like you in the team, you're going to get your perspective, and it might be very comfortable because you know nobody's going to argue with you. But you're you're missing a yeah. whole bunch of other stuff, and all the research that's ever been done um, shows that diverse teams they take less money, they fail less often, and they return more capital to investors. Mm -hmm. so that's that's a, a really big one. It's it's one that I'm personally committed to. And then I guess the third thing is you've just got to work at communication right the whole time. You know. This job is a, is a job of telling stories, um, and not in a nasty way, in a nice way. Sure, yeah, This yeah. is about explaining what you're doing in ways that make sense to the person listening on the other side of the table. And if you can do that, if you can do it with your staff, if you can do it with your investors, if you can do it with your customers, your collaborators, you're going to be successful. Mm -hmm. you know, if you've got a good story and you can back it up with, you know, with real depth, that's, that's what a successful company does. Yeah. I think the diversity point is really interesting from a point of view of, um, I suppose this concept that, that um, diversity drives innovation in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I always talk to people about in this sector, in the sort of pharma and biotech sector, is that the industry is very innovative. And particularly right now, there's so many innovative ideas going on. Mm. But from a, a sort of team construction point of view and a hiring point of view, you know, they keep hiring the same people from the same universities and the same companies. <laughs> and yeah, uh, you know, yeah. domain knowledge is important because it's a highly regulated industry and it's very complex. Yeah. But if 70% of your teams have domain knowledge and the other 30% don't, then surely there's a meeting point in the middle somewhere. So it's not just about the race and gender part, but that's important. Yeah. But also where people are coming from in their no, background I, and experience. I totally agree. And, you know, you need... You look at this space, you look at AI-enabled drug discovery, you've got a bunch of 19-year-old tech dropouts who, you know, are, you know, caffeine-fueled and, and, <laughs> and uh, you know, hyper about developing innovative new, new approaches to things. And you've got people like me, you know, somewhat older, <coughs> uh, 
who've been around and seen it a little bit yeah. and got cynical about some things um, and acquired expertise stroke bias um, as well. And you need a blend of those because the, the bright young things don't know what's not going to work. Mm. And so there's a lot of pitfalls that they will fall into. Um, knowing, not knowing that something's impossible is also a good thing. Yes, of course. Um, you know, so if, no, if you don't know it's impossible, you go and do it anyway, which is pretty <laughs> much what we do with Ox and the Wet Right. Um, but, you know, you do need centering and you do need focus and you do need um, a level of discipline mm -hmm. as well so bringing those two things together if you can make that work inside the same organization you can leave room for that innovation and um, you know that that spirit of exploration and you know, trying new things yes but at the same time be, f be focused on a goal that everybody can get behind put all the weight behind the arrowhead or you know that that's a winning success, a successful formula as far as I can see. Yeah, and I love work, and frankly, I I love working with the bright young things. Yes, <laughs> they keep me motivated, and they you know they keep me excited. And mm -hmm. That's that's half the battle. Absolutely, and we'll come on to, to what you're excited about at the moment in a minute. <laughs> um, but the nine startups in, I'm sure there's been some great times. I'm sure there's been some difficult times as well. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing that maybe you've you've learned from missteps or, or things not working that, that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Yeah, a lot of the a lot of the challenges um, that we've had in areas that have, have caused problems for the business have been around failing to recognise that people have different agendas. Okay, and. You know, not not just at a motivational level, but you know, if you're talking about investors, for example, they may be at different stages of their funds. Mm -hmm. They maybe have different pools of capital available to them. Sure. They may be motivated by different things. Um, you know, I'm talking more broadly there. Failing to understand who you're talking to and working with, and not recognizing it early enough. Is usually what cause is there's some nugget of that is the root cause of failure, um, and I can think of many examples where agendas just have not been aligned and not not been recognised and therefore not been managed early enough. Right. And they've yeah. created tensions that have spilled over into um, you know into antagonistic kind of um, views of each other, and that that can cause. Um, yeah. So, you know, stay on top of it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I suppose it's easy to forget, right? Because behind every business, every investment fund, every piece of technology, there's a bunch of people. It's all about people. You know. Ultimately, absolutely, you're right. Yeah, I mean, it's about people, what they care about, what they feel they, mm -hmm. they own of it, you know, how yeah. they get their motivation. Um, and the more you understand that, the better. You know, it is a it's a team, but the team is of, of it, very individual people. You know, some people are motivated by money, some people are motivated by doing things that they deeply care about, um, and that could be because there's a um, a societal benefit to it, or it could be because they love playing with technology. You know, there's people who care about the recognition element of yeah. it, and there's people who don't. And you know, if you get if you can align 
all of those opportunities to the right people in the right way, then you've got a great team. If you get it wrong and you you know you start recognizing somebody who doesn't care, you've just wasted your effort. Yeah, of course. Um, or if you you know if you deny recognition to somebody who's desperate for it, you've you've created a serious problem for yourself. Mm-hmm. So. I, I mentioned self-awareness, but awareness about every single member of the team, and that's, you know, I, I extend that to collaborators, customers, and investors as much as um, as the internal team. Yeah. And the better you know them, the, the better you can deal with them. Absolutely. And linking back to this, this self-awareness point, um, what is it now, this question in two parts, I suppose, what is it now that, that gets you excited and gets you out of bed in the morning about either the sector or the work that you're doing and, and what's next for Row Analytics and where is everything headed? Yeah, so I mean, it's actually, it's not very hard for us to get out of bed in the morning. <laughs> um, so I mentioned the challenges in, in healthcare at the moment. So, you, you know, I, I started my career, one of the reasons I got into this career was I was, I was selling the software for Oxford Molecular. And very early in my career, I went to visit um, one of the paediatric oncology wards in Boston. And, you know, from that moment, you realize that there are things that you could do that could change the lives of of patients. And it isn't a trite thing, and it isn't a a glib um, assertion. It's a very real thing when you're Mm -hmm. face-to-face with with patients that you can help. More recently, you know, we do a lot of work with disease charities. Right. So um, one of the disease areas that we're working in is ALS. And we've been lucky enough to collaborate with some of the big projects in ALS and some of the great KOLs there. Um, And we've, because of the technologies that we have, and it's a big unmet medical need in in ALS, for example, um, two drugs out there, they do very little to help Mm -hmm. the disease and it's always fatal. It's a horrible progressive neuropathy from you know, you lose nerve function from the outside in and yes. you can't swallow or breathe. Horrible, horrible disease. No effective therapy. So, you know, we've, there are about 35 drug targets that are known out of that. I don't, do you remember the ice bucket challenge? Where yeah. Where people yeah, were yeah. taking buckets of water over their head? Well, we got access to a lot of the sequence data for patients that was collected from that. And we did an analysis on it. And the bottom line is we've identified um, there's about 35 gene targets known. We've identified, actually invalidated about 33 more. Fantastic. Of which 10 are currently, uh, so we, we're working with three key opinion leaders independently. And uh, about 10 of those targets are now being taken through the, the drug development uh, pipeline wow. by one of our translational medicine research partners. That's a, that's a huge deal. Yes. You know, for, for me personally, that's a huge deal um, in terms of motivation. But we've also worked in asthma, we've worked in breast mm-hmm. cancer, we've worked in diabetes, you know, big commercially interesting diseases where there are still pockets of unmet medical need or poorly met medical need that you can go and solve. And, you know, I feel very privileged at the moment because in you know, I, I think we have a new type of Invented a microscope, right? Yeah, yeah. Genetics. Yeah. Every other methodology can see the surface layer. We're getting down into the next layers down to be able to see these patient subgroups and be able to address therapy against them, 
and that to me is is you know it's one of the the grand challenges of making health relevant to people and affordable for people mm -hmm. going forward so you know there, there you go that's why i get out of bed in the morning fair enough fair <laughs> enough and um, um, yeah go on sorry yeah, and you were asking what's next for us yes well, i mean more of the same so we're um i mentioned als uh asthma diabetes and uh, a couple of other diseases that we're actively working on taking the insights that we're generating through target validation in a biological sense and then moving up into um, uh, optimizing the chemistry so you know we're we're turning ourselves into a, effectively a, a biotech company mm -hmm. um, we have partnerships with um, uh, people to do early stage um, development of, of those assets but we're also working with um, we're also using the technology in different ways. So pharma companies want to be able to do better clinical trials. Sure. They want to be able to select their patients on the basis not just of single gene tests, but these combinatorial features that mm -hmm. will describe a responder population. So we're doing that. And the same technology is being used by um, healthcare companies. So for example, we have a project to, um, uh, to look at retrospectively at all of the cancer immunotherapy patients for a very large non-profit um, research clinic in okay. the US and understand what are the profiles of those patients that make them respond in the best way to individual medications and then potentially to combinations of medications. Yes. And that becomes something that can then be rolled out with their full co cooperation and collaboration to their clinicians. Mm -hmm to get back to that end point that we talked about earlier about enabling them to make better decisions at the point of care. Yeah. And that's, you know, again, that's the five to 10 year vision of precision medicine, how it actually gets rolled out. Yes. And, you know, we're, we're playing an active part in it. Excellent. Well, I think it's fascinating to see. I think it's really wide ranging and worthwhile and best of luck with it. Thank you very much indeed. Much appreciated. Thanks for joining us on Careers in Discovery, and don't forget to subscribe for more insight into the world of drug discovery and R&D. Do take a look at our sponsors, Singular Talent, and their mission to make hiring better for companies and individuals in drug discovery and R&D. You can find them at www.singulartalent.io. See you next time.